that started its start. So this week's been a great week. Um, Tamika got baptised on the hottest day of the year. I think yeah, I've, I've been I was baptised before. I was baptised actually in April, so I've had um, a long kind of history of drug and alcohol abuse. So I'm clean, I'm sober. Um, so yeah, I've had a bit of a difficult life in care, um, issues with self harm and stuff like that. So I think um, God saved my life. That's all I can say really. And yeah, that's my testimony. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. Good. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. That's lovely. And you're down from 17 cigarettes a day to seven, is it? So I'm moving about four. Four times a day, yeah. 17 to four. But that, that was before, but it's a gradual thing, so I would say it's not an easy road. It doesn't mean that your life's just going to change overnight, but it's good that you're having that conviction to change anyway. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well done. Yeah, I feel encouraged by hearing you have spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 yeah, that's important. Don't be yourself up. Yeah. And I'll say to folks who have spoken on any any of these issues, you're not you're not going to be saved by the steel in your will. Yeah, some people have got more let's face it, more steel will than other people. But salvation is not for the steel will. It's for the weak. And we are all weak. And okay, so give us hope. Okay, good, great. Excellent. And then we're going to do stand before God like I am ready, I am clean. Now I'm good enough to be baptized, but I'm good enough to I'm good enough this, I'm good enough that. No, Jesus said, I'm a doctor and I came for the sick. Not for those who don't think they need any repentance. And yes, that's like great. But you know what? We are sinners. And we know a load of other stuff. What you have done even realize. And David says in the Psalms, forgive me for my secret sins. Well, I think what he means is, forgive me for what I do wrong that I don't even realise is wrong. So, this whole sin problem is dealt with in Jesus, which is why we're here. Right, anyone else got any testimony how many cigarettes they, they cut out or increased? No, I've got some. That health you see, Well, they actually told me that's one thing they told me, that not to 
it's all the sugar that's missing. Anyway, it's the sugar. Anything with sugar. Ideas. So, anyone else got anything they'd like to share? What's happened this week in their lives? Right, we're going to read 2 Kings chapter 4. This is about the widow woman who's um, full of oil and turned into lots of oil. And there's more to this story than it seems. Always is the Bible. So, um, I wonder if somebody could just read the story. I always ask somebody if she, she reads so nicely, but um, Mark can also read your second story. So. Uh, now they cried out of the certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead. You know that your servant fed Yahweh. Now the creditor has come to take for himself my two children to be slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have what do you have in the house? She said. Your handmaid has nothing in the house except a pot of oil. Then he said, Don't borrow containers, empty ones, from all of your neighbours. Don't borrow just a few. You shall go in and shut the door on yourself and on your sons and pour out into all those containers and you shall set aside which is full. So she went from him and shut the door on herself and on her sons. They brought the containers to her and she poured out. It happened when the containers were full that she said to her son, bring me another container. He said to her, there isn't another container, the oil stopped flowing. Then she came and told the man of God. He said, no, sell the oil, pay your debt and your sons shall live on the rest. Okay, so 2 Kings chapter 4, this widow woman. Well, in the context, Elijah has been the big prophet of God, but God gets rid of Elijah because Elijah gets arrogant. He says to God, I'm the only guy who's faithful here, and uh, no one else is faithful. They all turn away apart from me. God says, no. There's still 7,000 who have got bound to lead a mail. Go and anoint Elisha to replace you. So, they're looking, of course, at the time in Israel when most of the Israelites had gone away from God and were worshipping Baal. But there was a few who were faithful, called the sons of the prophets. So you always find that, that even amongst the people of God, yeah, you've got the world, and then you've got the people of God. But even amongst the people of God, very often the majority go wrong, even amongst them. And it's the same here. The world had gone wrong, Israel were God's people, but even amongst them, there was just a few faithful. So, they cried a certain woman of the sons of the prophets to Elisha, saying, Your son, my husband, is dead. He feared Yahweh, he feared the Lord. Now the creditor has come to take for himself my two children to be slaves. Well, straight away, you see that you don't get the woman's name. You don't get the woman's name. And so often, in the story of Elijah and Elisha, you find that God's working with very obscure people. This woman is an anonymous widow who has got nothing. Elijah said, what have you got? She said, nothing in the house. No food, no nothing. Just a pot of oil. Um, and later on you're going to read about Naaman's wife. She had an anonymous Hebrew slave girl <clears throat> who was used by God to save Naaman. Then you read a story about how one of the sons of the prophets was coming down wood with an axe and he borrowed the axe from another guy and the axe head flew off and, and hit the, the river that 
down to the river. So the impression you get is that these stories here are about very obscure people who've got big problems in their lives and God comes into their lives. And of course this is the point for us that we're all obscure little people who have got our issues, as everybody does, but then God comes into their God comes into their lives. This is the point. Right, so this predator comes and says, look, pay up. I don't have anything. Okay, so give me your two kids. And straight away we don't like the predator, right? We, we don't like the guy. How can we do that? But you know, under the law of Moses, that was actually allowed. That if you had debts, then your kids could be sold into slavery, although you had to return them at the year of Jubilee every 50th year. And Elisha, of course, looks at this and says, okay, I'll try and find a way out for it. But my point is that that was actually legal under the law of Moses. And there was Elisha and Elijah said, no, no, come on, everybody, you've got to follow the Bible, you've got to follow the law of Moses. Well, of course, yes, don't be disobedient to it. But you can see the subtle nuance there that the way of grace is bigger than the way of legalism. Because to the letter of the law, you can treat people according to the letter of the law. And it's not a sin. But you see, the way of grace is so much wider and so much bigger than that. So, <clears throat> Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? What shall I do for you? And there's no answer. And then he says, Tell me what you buy in the house. So he says, What shall I do for you? Silence. And I get the impression that this woman was like, well, you're the man of God, come on, resolve my problem. But he makes her do something, yet she has to go and borrow containers. So this is the problem with a lot of people. I think God is like an ATM, he's like a, a cash machine. And all you need is the magic code. Pop, 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 and oh yeah, that's perhaps, you know, 20, 50 pound notes. God is not an ATM, and he's not so primitive. To do that. He wants our involvement. So, what should I do for you? I'm going to keep thinking about this. <clears throat> I think part of it was, what should I do for you? I'm a poor man. You, you've got a financial problem, but I, I don't have any money. But, when Elisha was called to be a prophet, he was actually wealthy. Because, we are told, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And Elijah comes to him and says, Elisha, follow me. He throws his mantle on him and he follows him. He kisses his pelts goodbye, burns his plows, sacrifices all his oxen and follows. So to have 12 yoke of oxen meant that you were fairly wealthy. Well, terribly wealthy, actually, by their standards. But when he's called, he gets rid of all that. He says goodbye to his pelts, burns his plows, sacrifices his oxen, and goes behind Elijah. And now he hasn't got anything. And there's a point. When you give, and I don't just mean financially, when you give forgiveness or give of yourself, then you are minus. It is a total myth to say, okay, if I give uh, 10 quid or 100 quid or whatever to the Lord, oh, you know what, I'm sure I'm going to be walking down the street and oh, I'm going to see 200 quid lying on the floor. No, if you give, you are minus. The idea, oh, if you give, you're going to get rich. No, you'll get rich in the kingdom of God. 
No, this one. If we give, we are mites. And it means to be mites. Elisha gave, sacrificed his oxen, sacrificed his plows, and his relationship with his parents, and then the mites. And now this woman comes to him, obviously, with a big problem. And he says, What can I do for you? I, I can't help you. But there's another thing. What shall I do for you? Going on in this chapter, he actually says it again. He meets another woman, this time a very wealthy woman, in Shunem. And this woman has never had a child. And he says, What shall I do for you? You'd love a child, wouldn't you? So he gets her a child. He makes her to, to miraculously conceive. So, what shall I do for you? And actually, Elijah, just before he was taken away from Elisha, had said to Elisha, Elisha, what can I do for you? He said, give me a double portion of this spirit. So, the point is, this question, what shall I do for you? Elijah had said that to Elisha, what can I do for you? And Elisha is now reflecting that grace and is saying to other people, what can I do for you? So, if you experience grace, and we spoke about grace last time, that grace means a gift, and that actually God's grace is unusual for us, because all we're used to is people being apparently generous when they want something out of us. Like in our country gives aid to Ukraine or some other country, but you know what it's for. They want their power there. They have an agenda. People say they love it. But actually they have got their needs, they want what they want out of the relationship. And pure love and pure grace are actually pretty well outside of our experience. But they are in Jesus. This is where the love of God and the love of Jesus and the grace of God and the grace of Jesus are actually something outside of our experience. But we are to respond to it. So Elijah had said to Elisha, what can I do for you, Elisha? And now Elijah's gone, he's saying that to other people. He says it to this poor widow woman, and he says it to the rich woman in Shunem, what can I do for you? Now, this, as I say, should be our thinking. What does that person need? And we also, you know, I feel like what's going on in my life, but we tend not to take that initiative. And that's what we should do. I think, how can I help that person? But forget about money. You know, churches, societies, all pound note signs, dollar signs. Forget, I'm talking about money. How can I help that person? How can I help that person? about money. How can I help that Because that is the way of grace to take the initiative. Love takes the initiative. Love is not passive. God was not passive to you and me. He took the initiative and came into our lives. And we are to reflect that by taking the initiative and going into other people's lives. Uh, but you take that initiative, you think about, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? And I say, I'm talking about money. Well, what, how much money can I do for you? Talk about what can I do for you? Well, a lot of people, frankly, what they need is a chat, just a bit of human interest in their life. It's simple as that. It's a very plastic world in which we live. So he says, tell me, what have you got in the house? She said, your handmaid has nothing in the house except a pot of oil. I have got nothing. 
she has got absolutely, totally nothing. So, the picture we get is of a house that's bare. She doesn't even have any containers, any cooking vessels. The place is empty, but apart from this pot of oil. Now, you know the Old Testament's mainly written in Hebrew, right? It's not written in English, you read the translation. Oil there is not talking about cooking oil. It's talking about anointing oil. And because, you know, the story goes that she pours all these containers, keeps on pouring out the oil, and wow, it fills up all these vessels, she sells it, and she's got enough money to pay her debt and live on for the rest of her life. Well, that wouldn't be the case if it was just cooking oil. This is anointing oil. And you remember the story of Jesus when the woman comes behind him and pours out the very expensive jar of anointing oil on his feet. I said, oh wow, you'd have to work for two, three years to, to buy that. So it was expensive. Right, she said, I've got nothing except a pot of oil. And of course the point is we've all got something. You've even got my food in the house. You've got something. We all have something. And so, if her husband had been a prophet, he was probably used for anointing prophets. I'll come back to that. So he said, go and borrow containers, empty ones from all your neighbors. Don't borrow just a few. So she's told to go and borrow empty containers. And as you know how the story goes, she starts pouring out the oil, and the oil keeps on coming until all the containers are full, and she goes and says. So, the extent of the miracle depended upon how many containers she borrowed. The extent of God's work, how much he did for her, depended on how many she borrowed. If she borrowed two containers, she got two containers full. If she borrowed ten, well, she got ten. So, it is, it is all of God, but you see in a very, uh, very beautiful way this has been done. It is all of God, but it is also of us. And how far God will work in your life depends upon you to some extent. And it's like the man who comes to the Lord Jesus with a sick child and says, if you can do anything, please help. And he says, no, he turns it positively around. If you can believe, everything is possible. So Jesus says, so don't come to me thinking, oh, well, if you can help God, uh, Jesus, you know, if you can help me, well, help me. He says, no, 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 I can do anything. It's up to you. How much do you believe? But it's all possible. You say, you've got your hand on the volume control. You've got your hand on the dial. You, you tell me how much I can do for you. Now, in the chapter before this, chapter 3, there's been a similar situation where the whole army of Israel goes out to the desert to fight some enemy, and well, they run out of water. They're all going to die. The Elisha's with them. They're going to die of thirst. And he says, dig trenches. The trenches. And then push the trenches and fill with water. Oh, they want water to drink. So. But how much water they had, I guess, depended on how many trenches they dug. And so it's this idea go and borrow uh, containers and borrow not just a few, 
So the tendency would have been to think, well, I will just borrow a few containers. And this is the, the problem. Don't you think, well, I'll give God a try. Everything else in my life has gone wrong. Oh, my insurance policy didn't pay. This didn't work, that didn't work. I've tried to doctor. I've tried uh, medicine. Um, I've tried to get some help from my, from my relative. And then I went back to my ex. That didn't work. I went out of You see, yes, give God a try. I so don't give God a try. But if that's your attitude, you won't get huge response. That's why he says, oh, not a few. Don't just give God a try. Don't just go to your neighbor's house. Could you lend me a couple of jam jars? And that's it. And go to all your neighbors. And get as many as you can. Bow on, not a few. Don't just, you know, give God a try. With your whole heart, with your whole heart, and then go for this. And see that really and truly God is willing to work through you. And so, well, she put out however many she uh, could. And she pours out the uh, oil in, into the containers. And then verse 6. When the containers were full, she said to her son, bring me another container. He said to her, there isn't another. And the oil stopped flowing. You wonder why you've got that little detail there. And I think that little detail is there because it's like the cameraman is zoomed in on the fabric. There's mum pouring the oil and one of the kids is bringing the containers and uh, uh, yeah, okay, next one. And you imagine the boy and the mother eye to just catching each other's eye. There isn't one. There isn't another one. And I think the unspoken thing was, if only we borrowed more. That's the last one. And the oil stopped flowing when there were no more empty vessels. Now, the point is we've got to be empty vessels. The New Testament says that we are vessels for God's service. But you've got to be empty. And the problem is we've all got all this gunk inside us, right? And it's very difficult to empty yourself. It's very difficult. Because we've all got all our little bits we want to hold on to. It's very difficult. And I think you can only really empty yourself on a church on your own. Try on your knees. Try on your knees. And just say to God that I want to be totally empty. It's very difficult, you know, to, for example, recover the Bible with a truly open mind. Just guide me, speak to me, Lord. It's very difficult to get, if you like, a second naivety. To be, as it were, a born again virgin. To sort of start again and say, look, I'm a blank, I'm a blank piece of paper, Lord, just write it. I'm, I'm empty, so I'm really hard. Because we all think we know, and we all think we're all blanks as well, we've all been through our head. It's so difficult. <laughs> but that is what's needed. And then you can be filled. But, he says, go in, verse 4, and shut the door on yourself and on your sons, and pour out into all those containers. So, you and your sons go in and shut the door. Now, I want to talk about that. Why go in and shut the door? Verse 5, it says, so she went from and shut the door 
purpose of the result. Later on, in the rest of the chapter, you read about the rich woman who gets a baby um, from Elijah. Well, I mean, by a miracle, she, she and her husband conceived. And she has, has this child, and then it dies. And again, you read the same thing in the same chapter, chapter 4. She takes the dead child into a room and shuts the door. And then she says, Elisha, come and resurrect my child. Elisha comes and again, he goes into the room where the dead boy is, and he shuts the door and prays. What, what's all this about shut the door? You know, verse 4, shut the door in itself. And so she shut the door in itself. Jesus says the same. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father as in secret. And also, continue emphasis. Well, I think here the idea is that Elisha's saying, I'm not going to be present. It's not like I, the man of God, stand there in the room with you and do a miracle and make all the, you know, make all the oil pour out, etc. He's saying, I'm not going to do that. It's going to be you and the two boys and God do a miracle. And this is what God wants. He wants us to have this personal relationship with Him without a man of God standing there in your own room with that door shut. This is why Jesus says, again, shut the door and pray to your Father who is in spirit. Going to church is a good thing, but that is not the essence. The essence is who you are and nobody's there. We can all go to church and look good and uh, dress up and talk nicely. How, how's your week been? Uh, awesome. And how was your week? Uh, awesome. You know, it's like a sort of a, a law that you, you, everything's going to be awesome. Yeah. The real essence is not all that. The essence is who you are on your knees in your room with the door shut. Now, if you have no prayer life, well, you have a relationship with God and with Jesus. If you are truly in relationship with them, you will shut your door. Being physically shut, of course, doesn't really matter, but the idea is your total personal space with God and Jesus. Well, dear mother, it's been a long time. She uh, taught me to pray on my knees. And, uh, you know, that's it. That's you pray on your knees to, to God, <clears throat> and talk to the Lord Jesus on your knees. I really encourage you to do that. And if, if you don't have that private time with God and with Jesus, well, do you have a relationship? It ends up like a marriage or a relationship where you don't really talk to each other and you just might send each other a text message every now and again. Well, that's not a relationship, is it? And so this is, you know, this is how it is. He wants her to have this experience of God on her own. Absolutely on her own. Shut the door. I'm not going to be there. So in the future, when you remember it, you're going to think, oh, the man of God was there and did some sort of miracle, did some magic. No. It was you, the boys, and God. You are, we are, the temple of God. And when Paul said that, we, we're used to that. I think we all know that Paul said that. You are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. Uh, we can forget the huge 
significance of that. The Jewish folks thought that God is in the temple. So you go to the temple and they've got. And Paul says, You are the temple. Actually, the Old Testament says the same. That God doesn't live in, in the houses by the hands, by the humble hearts. That He is in us. That is not to say that you have no uh, sort of horizontal relationship with people. Yes, of course you do. Yeah, it wouldn't be here at church in a pub if I were in church. Of course, yeah, you need that horizontal. But I'm saying there must be that direct vertical connection. Because without that, you're nothing. But you can have that. And this is why he's saying, shut the door upon yourself. You own your sons. And then he says, you know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to, uh, you know, the oil is going to multiply. And then she comes to him and says, what should I do with it? And he says, I'll go and sell it. Don't forget, this is a small town village, Israel, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. Can you imagine the questions? This dirt poor woman who's got nothing in her house is there selling really expensive anointing oil. Very cheap. Everyone thought, where'd you get that from? Where'd you get so much from? Did you nick it? Or where'd you get that from? Where'd you find that? And well, she'd have had to explain because they would be like, oh, come on, where'd you get it from? You know, it's like suddenly, if you're living in a little uh, flat somewhere and suddenly you have a whole fleet of Mercedes outside your house and you're selling it. Oh, where'd you get it from? You nick it. Where'd that come from? And, you know, in their equivalent, oh, you've got all this expensive anointing, right? Where'd you get it from? Well, she'd have had to say, well, I'll tell you what happened. I was in my room with the door shut. This is what happened. And of course, the people she lent the containers to would have, yeah, she'd have given them back. So, you know, I, I lent you a bowl. Oh, what's this smell? That's hey, a really nice smell. What have you had in here? Oh, anointing oil. Ah, that, what? Where did that come from? You're poor. She would have had to tell them what happened. But, God arranged it so beautifully that all that happened behind a closed door. So, this is the basis of our witness. That our personal relationship with God and Jesus that goes on, as it were, behind closed doors, that is totally personal to your me. That it is that that is the basis upon which we go out as a word to the world. And witness. Otherwise, it's not, as it were, in my opinion, legitimate that we are simply talking our words to people from an empty heart. But if in your heart you have that relationship, that you know that is real, then sure, on that basis it will come out. And I will say that the Lord Jesus alludes to this when he says, You go into your door, into your room, and shut the door in front of you. Father is in secret. In other words, he was aware of this Old Testament history. He was the Word made flesh. He knew all this. He absolutely, God's Word was in his heart. He knew this. And he's saying, that woman in her room with the door shut is every one of you. Now, I think there was another reason, and that is why he said shut the door. And that is because, as the years went by, she would have been tempted to think, uh, I wonder what happened there. Um, 
with our sins. We all know no God's. But He will work through us and with us. There is no question about that whatsoever. But you've got to be empty. And then if you have the, the faith to be used by God, you will be. Now this is not talking about money. Everyone's got a little pound sign in their head, you know. Oh, you know, money. Oh, if I give money, I'll get wealthy. Get that. It's talking about the spirit. More than anything else, do you want to be used by God? We all might say, yeah. I can tell you, man is never better. Woman is never better. And when we are being used by God, when you actually achieve something for Him and for other people. And we want to be used, but we're like, well, how can I be used? Um, I don't have a powerful qualification. There isn't any qualification. God wants to use you. Your qualification is that you are an empty vessel. But I want to be filled. And in accordance with our faith, in accordance with how far, we will empty ourselves and will, as it were, borrow the vessels that we might be filled, so it will happen. That is really and truly how it is. Absolutely. And, well, of course, you, you come now, because we're coming with a bread and a wine that represents the, uh, the Lord's body and, 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 and blood. You see, we are asking Him to fill us. You take that bit of bread, you are showing your desire to identify with His body. You take the cup, you are showing, yes, I want to be filled with your life because the love is, but the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And his love is his love. We want him to come into us. To take that is as it were, so I'm the empty vessel, I want to be filled. You remember, they took a spear and pierced his side and out there burst blood and water. Blood and water. That represents his blood, his life, his spirit for us. And we want to be filled with that. And this is why we take that very wine. To say, yes, I want to be filled. I want to be filled. Come and fill me. Um, and we will be. And the spirit will, as it were, keep on coming. The oil will keep on coming. Whilst there are empty vessels, whilst you are willing. Now you don't know how God is going to use you, but if you want to be used, you will be. You will be. It could be to transform someone else's life. And if you can say, just in between the commas, just one person, this is fantastic. And what most people can't look back on, especially if you get older, I don't know, games did you play on the screen? Or how many points did you score on this game or that game? Or how much chit-chat did you have with this one or that one on Facebook or whatever? There's nothing tangible. If you know someone, if you knew someone, if you, for example, had an alcohol problem, had this problem, and you helped them to change, and you know, I'm old enough to have done this with people, and then they go through their lives, Transformed, and then they die because we're going to die, right? We're going to step out of here alive. And you go to their funeral, you do their funeral. Oh man, I can tell you there is nothing better. There is nothing better. Now, this is better than all the wealth in the world. 
to actually for one person to everlasting life. I know God and Jesus are the ones who are doing it, but they still need, if you like, that human interface, that human touch. And that's us. And if we're putting our hand up and saying, yes, I want to be that human touch, I'm here for years. Uh, especially with our families. You know, our family is so hard, isn't it? We're, we're family. Um, but we may be the only chance they got spiritually. They ain't going to go to no church. They're not going to believe anything. But you and me are the face of Jesus. You see, that is what it is to be part of the body of Jesus, that we are hidden to this world. You take that bread, symbol of his body, you're showing, yes, I want to be his body. I want to be him to this world. And, you know, in a sense, he has no other hands or face, as Mother Teresa said, than us. We are him. We are, you know, they're not going to read the Bible, unless there's folks in the world. They're not going to look into anything about Jesus until they see you and me. And when you inquire why in the early church, why did Christianity spread? I've done a lot of thought about that. Why did Christianity spread so dramatically? Because the message was so unattractive to the first century culture, just like it's unattractive in our culture. The idea that, well, Jesus, you see, there was a Jew. I didn't like Jesus. Well, this guy was a Jew. And he didn't uh, actually have a father. God, God was his father. Really? Is there any God on the, on the whole earth who never had a father? That was God was his father. Well, he didn't sin. Well, I don't think sin mattered. Okay, God didn't sin. Um, and then he was crucified by the Romans when he was 33 years old. Well, crucifixion was shameful. Oh, okay, so shame on him then. Yeah, and after three days he rose again. And then 40 days later he went to heaven. And he's coming back. Oh yeah, did he? So did anyone see him after he rose? Um, uh, well, a few people. The whole message didn't just seem very strange. And don't forget, if you became a Christian in most of the Roman Empire, then you were going to be persecuted. Why would people in what is today Turkey, what is today Greece, what is today Italy, why would people line up to be baptized into this person, knowing they were going to have a lot of suffering for being Christians? Why? Why do this? The obvious question was, you're telling me about this guy. Where is he? I want to see him. I'm not going to risk my life for someone I can't see. You tell me all this story about him died and rose again and all that. Well, where is he? I'm sorry? I want to know where he is. Why am I bothered? You say that he died and the body was put in the grave and then, well, it wasn't in the grave anymore. What? Where is he? And of course, the answer to that, as people stood in the marketplace, in what today is Turkey, in what today is Greece, the answer to that, as to where is he, is standing here right in front of me. And my sister over there and my brother over there. You see, that, that was the thing. That we are the body of Christ. And it is the witness of transformed lives that is the greatest evidence, actually, that Jesus is real. You know, I've baptized 
something to an art place on one night on Tuesday, whatever it was. Um, and hearing her story, wow, you got an idea to make. I mean, of course I believed in Jesus, I believed in the resurrection, of course I did. But it was like he was there in front of me, listening to Cindy, so to say, listening to your story. And this is the great thing, that we are the body of Christ, we are him for this world, we are the evidence. And that's how it was in the first century, that people were persuaded of Jesus and to give their lives for him because they met him. And how did they meet him? In the body of Christ, in us, if we who believe. We who are so apparently small, dysfunctional, weak, etc. So, we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the, uh, the cup as a symbol of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to give thanks for the bread and then we'll uh, share it amongst ourselves. Maybe we can pass the bread. No, there's only one plate there. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right, let's, let's just pray first. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread that is the symbol to us of the body of Jesus. We thank you for it with all our hearts. We want to be his body. We want to be part of him. And we thank you that you call us to know him for his sake. Amen. Let's give thanks for cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this symbol of the blood and the life of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you will fill our lives with his life. And that really we might be able to be more empty vessels to just be filled by him, by his life, by his spirit. And be forever and ever yours, for his sake. Amen. So we take this in memory of his blood.